So good to be back with you this morning. I've, I've been away for some time visiting brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel in some dark places with uh, some faithful brothers and sisters. And I tell you what, it's, it's good to travel the world. It's good to be uh, encouraging to other people, but it's even better just to be uh, back here with my brothers and sisters whom the Lord has called me to be uh, faithful to and faithful with. And so I'm thankful for the time to be away. I'm thankful for the brothers who uh, carried the load here as I was gone, but I'm thankful to be back as well. In the last few years, you would probably agree with me, it seems as though everything has gone up, right? Everything. The cost of real estate, the price of fuel, and even distrust of politicians. And you might think, well, I didn't know that distrust of politicians is something that can go up, and yet it has indeed gone up. In the political realm, as well as in the church realm. Leaders accused of and guilty of scandal after scandal, abuse after abuse. Leaders in churches across the denominational spectrum, many of them showing their true colors, and these colors not good. And in light of this situation that we find ourselves in. We come to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. And so if you would, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me there to Hebrews chapter 13. We are rounding the corner, as it were. We're running home in our great study of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. And we looked at verses 1 through 6 a few weeks ago, and now this morning we'll look at 7 all the way down to verse 19. If you don't have a, your own copy, you're welcome to use the black hardback Bible in front of you. And uh, that you'll, you'll find uh, our text for this morning, Hebrews 13, on page 1197. And so very, very close to the back of that large uh, Bible book in front of you. Right under the large number 13, you'll see about halfway down the page, verse number 7. This is where we are this morning. But before we look at verse 7, let me just give you a very, very brief recap of the first six verses of chapter 13. We were commanded, we saw the command to love our brother. Love our brother. And then that command to love our brother was quickly nestled next to it was our a command to love our neighbor, to love our, the strangers around us. So we're to love our brothers, we're to love our neighbors as Christians, but we're not to love money. So there was three loves. There was don't love money, but love your brother, love your neighbor. And now it's almost in verse seven as if we are being commanded to love our leaders. Almost as if we're being commanded to love our leaders. There's so much being said here. The first few verses are, are challenging us on how we view our leaders and how we remember our leaders. And then we see some instructions some comments about Jesus, how he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and how his sacrifice on behalf of God's people was more effective and different than the sacrifice that had been made on the day of Yom Kippur for hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years. But then in verse 17, it reverts back and says, hey, here's some more instructions on how you're to interact with and think of your leaders. And then 18, 
a specific request that this leader, this preacher, this writer says, pray for us. This is a little bit of an overview. Let's look at it quickly this morning. Verses 7 down to verse 19. It says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought up into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, they're burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word together. Father, as we do often, we just stop. And even at the risk of being redundant, we ask you to do what only you can do. Let you help us to understand this passage. And Father, not just to understand it, but to change us by it. Father, we've come this morning not independently as you exist now. You are not in need of anything. And that's not us. We are in great need. More than a meal this morning, Father, a physical meal, we need a spiritual meal. We need a reminder. And we don't just need to understand, Father, we need hearts to continually be changed. And we need the truths of these gospel words to be massaged deeper into our hearts. And we pray that that would take place this morning. Father, I confess there's nothing I can say, there's nothing I can do this morning apart from the work of your spirit that will accomplish these things. And so we throw ourselves upon your altar, asking you to do what only you can do. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. If you want that to be true, would you say amen? As it relates to leadership, the Holy Scriptures have far more to say toward the action of leaders than to the actions of those who would be led by those leaders. That, that the Bible has a lot to say to leaders. 
When we come to a passage like this, we might think that's not necessarily the case because there's so many instructions here. There's six, uh, five explicit and, and, and six implied commands for us. If you look at the scriptures, you'll see verse 7, starting there, it says that we are to remember our leaders. We're not just to remember our leaders, and we'll look at what it exactly means to remember our leaders, but we are to move past remembering to considering them. And then we move past considering our leaders to imitating our leaders. That's what we're all to do. And then the command moves past imitating them to obeying them. And then submitting to them. And finally, to praying for them. Maybe you read this morning a blind submission to any church authority, whether abusive or wholesome. And I, before you come to that conclusion this morning, I want you to notice a few things. Before we move on, I just want you to know, I, I, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know where you have come from in the area, in the realm of church leadership. I don't know what your relationship has been with church leaders in the past. I imagine for many of us, there's been pain in the past. Maybe there's been neglect. Maybe there's been abuse of various kinds. Maybe it hasn't really been a wholesome experience. And maybe when you read this passage, you hear it read in your ears. Maybe it even causes you to wince a little bit with pain. Maybe it presses on a spot that's a little bit tender. And I want you to know something this morning. That the scriptures are not calling us to blind submission to any church authority that would exercise its presumed authority over you. But there's a bit of a qualification here. And so... Today and next Sunday, we'll take both days to look at these verses that we've read. And this morning, first, we're going to look at what it is, what are the qualifiers to a worthy leader, a leader who is worthy of being followed, a leader who is worthy of being imitated or submitted to and obeyed. And next week, we'll actually look at those commands. But today, first, we're going to ask this question, what does it take to be a worthy leader, worthy of these things? Well, it's listed here for us, and so let's look. We'll take three observations this morning. The first is that worthy leaders are faithful to the word. Worthy leaders are faithful to the word. What is the word? Well, the word is the message from above. The word is the message from God himself. We see in John chapter 1, Jesus come and in the beginning was the word. And the word was God and the word was with God. It's a reference to Jesus. Even in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that God's word came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the message of Jesus, the message of God through Jesus is the word. And we know this, that worthy leaders are to be faithful to the word. And so to be clear, faithful leaders are to be faithful to the message that Jesus declared. This is what we see in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, an account of the word of God, the word of God, the word about God the Son, the word from God and through God the Son, the Holy Scriptures. Second Timothy chapter 3 
We'll spend quite a bit of time there in this general vicinity. And so you can keep your finger there in Hebrews 13. But you can also flip over to 2 Timothy. We'll be there again for several passages. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the man who would preach the word of God may himself be complete and equipped to do the good work there in the church. Verse 7 in Hebrews 13 says that we are to remember our leaders But which leaders are we talking about? We're to remember the leaders who spoke the word of God to you. There's many leaders who would love to think of themselves as worthy leaders. And yet when they stand behind a desk similar to this one, it is not the word of God that they proclaim, but it is their own word that they proclaim. It's their own desires that they chase. Maybe even the desire to be loved and honored and respected by those with whom they talk. And so instead of preaching the word of God, they preach the word of man. I remember as a young man feeling the call to pastor, feeling that desire to be a pastor in a local church. That desire was stirring in my heart and I began to walk in that way and to take steps towards that, asking, looking for uh, affirmation by those whom I walked with, those who knew me the most. But then there was a fear that set in pretty quickly in my heart and maybe you can relate to this and it was the fear that I really have nothing to say. I've mentioned this before and maybe some of you think it very difficult to believe, but I remember thinking as a young man, I don't know how I could stand behind a wooden desk like that and talk for more than three, four minutes. Some of you have find that hard to believe. And yet I remember the comfort that came to me, even as a young man, that if I am to stand and to teach the people of God, it's not my own thoughts, it's not my own wisdom. I don't need to have anything to say But I am called as a man of God, as a leader in a church, as a pastor, to give the word of God. And this is precisely what the Apostle Paul said. I had every opportunity, he says, when I was in your presence to to teach you this or to say that, but I didn't do that. I made it my aim, he says, to just preach Christ and him crucified, to just preach the word of God. And that is exactly what a man that is worthy of honor, worthy of the things that we see there in Hebrews 7 or 13, 7 and following. That's what he's to be faithful to. If we were to continue to read there in 2 Timothy, but this time not in chapter 3, there at the beginning of chapter 4, what does it say? Well, Paul, the apostle, speaking to his young protege, Timothy, he says to him, I charge you, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, what are you to do? I charge you to preach the word. I I charge you, I command you to declare the word of God, to be ready in season and out of season. You're to reprove, 
You're to rebuke. You're to exhort and with complete patience and teaching. What is he to do? Timothy's not to have his own words of wisdom. He's to use the word of God and to declare it for the people of God so that they can be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted in every way. He says, for the time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And all of these things are to be accomplished through the preaching of the word of God and that faithfully. And so when you look at this list of commands in Hebrews 13, to remember your leaders, to consider their, their lives, to imitate them, to obey them, submit to them, and even to pray for them, you need to know this, that you are commanded to do that for those who teach the word of God, not to those who teach their own wisdom. One of the reasons why we as a church are committed to expositional preaching and generally we just open up the Bible and read the next few verses of Scripture is because this holds us accountable. This puts us on the path to not teach our own hobby horses, our own wisdom, our own desires, but to just teach the next thing, the next part of the Word of God. We have a desire here to be faithful to the word, which is exactly what a man who is worthy of these things would do. But not only would he be faithful to the word, but he would be faithful to the end. This is number two. He would be faithful to the end. Look at verse seven, the second part of that verse. It says that you're to consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Now, what I understand about these particular leaders that are in view in chapter 13, verse 7, is that they're likely dead. They're likely dead. And how did they die? Well, we don't know for sure. We are making some big assumptions here, but we do believe that they are dead and probably because they were martyred. Probably because of their stance on the word of God. We know that this very thing, martyrdom, was taking place. And we know that in this general time, the Apostle Paul even was not long before had been guilty of that same sort of martyrdom. Even the beloved Stephen, whose life was taken from him as rocks bounced off of his body. He looks up into heaven. He looks unto Jesus. At the end of Stephen's life, he's faithful to the word of God and maybe even these leaders here that are in view faced a similar fate. And so now the writer, the preacher is saying, consider these leaders who in the past spoke the word of God to you. And then it says, also uh, implying that these guys are, are no longer with them, he's saying, consider their outcome. In, in essence, he's saying, consider how it all ended. They said these things all their lives. They were faithful to teach the word of God to you, even up until the end of their lives. It's as if he's saying they were faithful to the end. I want you to remember them, their faithfulness to the end, and I want you to consider the way everything actually ended. How did it end? Were they faithful to the end? Were they faithful like the Apostle Paul? Continuing to read there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
Verses 6 and 7, we see the Apostle Paul, again, speaking to young Timothy, this young pastor. He's saying to him, Timothy, I want you to know something about me. Verse 6, he says, I'm ready. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He says, the time of my departure has come. It's all over. And what does he say in verse 7? I have fought the good fight. And we could say an amen to that as we consider the life of Paul. How he was rescued from darkness. How he was rescued from damnation. And there on that road, light pierced his heart. And he followed that light. He followed the word of God. He followed faithfully to the end of his life. And what does it say? Paul says, I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. When you compare the words of Paul with the life of Paul, we see that they were not far from one another. We see that Paul's testimony lined up with Paul's lifestyle. And that's what we look for in leaders. Not necessarily to look for leaders who are dead, but we look for leaders whose lifestyle matches their speech. Faithful. Faithful. Maybe you remember the qualifications of pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you were to turn back, you don't have to, but you could also write this down. It's helpful for you to know where do the scriptures give instructions on the qualifications for leaders in the church? Well, it's 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And just quickly, I'll glance over 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is where we find the qualifications of a pastor or an elder. Particularly in verse 4, it says, He, speaking of this would be pastor, he must manage his household well. Why? For, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The idea is this. If we see a man and we say, well, he, he's able to, to speak the word of God, but is his life consistent with the word of God? Well, we don't know because he's not been a pastor yet. Well, that's true, but you can look at the way that he leads his life, or leads his family, rather. In essence, the qualifications here are saying, consider their outcome of their life. Truly look at their own household, the way that they manage their own personal household, their own family, is the way that they'll manage God's household. And so we're to look at their outcome. Again, we don't need to wait until elders are dead before they can become elders. But we can't consider the outcome of their life thus far. And I think that's in line with verse 6, which says... He must not be a recent convert. Well, one of the reasons for that listed here clearly is that we don't want a young convert to become puffed up with conceit and then fall into condemnation of the devil. But we can also assume that there in this command that he not be a recent convert is that we need to have a little bit of a track record in his life. Yes, he again can say the right things about the word of God, but will his life line up with that? Well, we need some time. We need some time. Moreover, in verse 7, it says, he must be thought of well by outsiders. Again, one of the ways that we'll know that a man is ready to be an elder is if the, if the way that he has interacted with outsiders is consistent with the word of God. The things that the word says that he repeats, are they lining up with the way that he treats those who are outside the church as well as inside the church? 
And sadly, we hear so often of men who, who seem to lead well, maybe even to speak well and to preach well, to teach well at the beginning of their ministry, yet they are many who fall away and it was revealed that it was the love of money, it was the love of pleasure that eclipsed their love for God and for the gospel. And so the, the writer here, the preacher says, consider their way of life. Consider their outcome to date. Does it line up with the word of God? Do the things that they say in the pulpit match with the things that they do on Monday and on Saturday? In situations like these that we mourn over, what's finally revealed in the life of a fallen elder is that the gap between their message and their beliefs is vast. What they say they believed and what they really believed. What they say they worshipped and what they really worshipped is different. Friends, there's few things in life that are more dangerous than a man who is leading in God's house, who speaks the right words but does not live the things that he speaks. Worthy leaders are to be faithful to the word of God. They are to be faithful to the end. And finally, they are to be faithful to the Lord. They're to be faithful to the Lord. Look at verse 7 again. On into 8, it says, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consider their lifestyle. Consider their actions. Consider their faith. In essence, consider their trajectory. And what was the end? What was their aim of these men that they are to remember, these leaders that they're to remember? It was Jesus. The whole time, their focus, their aim was Jesus. And here's what's interesting. Verse 8, we might say, well, why in the world is it just plopped in here? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by the way, we love that verse. And many of us, we find that on coffee cups, T-shirts, bookmarks, things like that, and we don't really know where it's at, although we know it's true. Well, it's found right here, obviously. And what's the connection? What's the connection between considering the outcome and imitating the lifestyle, the faith of a leader in the church and Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, as we consider their lifestyle, these leaders who have gone before us, We're looking into the past and we're saying, how did they respond? How did they look to Jesus? Well, they looked to Jesus in this way. They imitated the faith of Jesus in this way. They imitated Jesus in this way. And yet, that was many years ago for them. And at the same time, you might say, well, is it relevant now? Their lifestyle in the past, is it relevant now? The way that those faithful men followed Jesus years ago, is it, is it relevant now? And the reality is, yes. Why? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and while we might say the application or the outworking of the way a past leader followed Jesus may be a little bit different today, the reality is if they followed Jesus faithfully in the past, if their life was aimed at Jesus in the past, our lives should be aimed at Jesus in the present. And that will be relevant for those who follow after us and imitate us. Consider the life of Paul. Again, continuing just to work through 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 8 particularly. It says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
Paul says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, but also those who have loved his appearing. Paul says there's a reward for me and there's a reward for those who loved Jesus appearing. Paul was a worthy leader, friends. He was a worthy leader in the church. He was faithful to the word of God. We saw that. We know that. He was faithful to the end of his own life. And finally, we see that he also was faithful to loving Jesus appearing. Paul had so many things at his fingertips as a leader in the church. So many things that he was given access to. And yet, what did Paul say? Even at the end of his life, there's one thing that I want. There's one thing. I could have all these other things, and I just want one thing. I want to be in the presence of my Lord and Savior. And he says, you know what? Part of me wants to stay here, but the biggest part of me wants to just go see him. I just want to be with him. He had access to so many things, and yet that's what he wanted. Paul was a worthy leader in the church. If you're looking for a man to follow after, if you're wondering what it does, what it looks like to be a man of God that's worthy of following, we can look straight to Paul, who said to us, follow me as I follow Paul, or as I follow Jesus. And yet, in contrast to Paul, are the men that we see or read about in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, just flip over there if you would, continuing to hold your place in Hebrews 13. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. What does the word of God say? But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false, pro- false, false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. What do we see as we contrast these two? Well, we see men who were false teachers, not true teachers, not worthy teachers, not men following after the word of God and following after Jesus, faithful to the end. No, these are people, false teachers, who teach destructive heresies, destructive lies. More than teaching destructive heresies, feeding the church poison, they have themselves denied the master. They've denied the Lord. They've not been faithful to him. They've not imitated Jesus into the end with selflessness, self-denial, loving the body of Christ, washing the bride with the word of God. No, that's not their play. They've denied the master and they have spouted destructive heresies. And what's their motivation? We'll look at verse two and 2 Peter 2, 2, it says, and many will follow these leaders' sensuality. The lusts of their hearts 
will be followed suit. They'll, the congregation, many of the congregations will follow after them. It says, and in their greed, verse 3, they will exploit you with false words. I hope that none of you can speak from experience and say you've experienced this. I hope that none of you can say that you have felt the destruction that comes through heresy. and You've followed a leader for a short period of time that denied the master, led out of sensuality and exploited you out of greed. And yet the reality is that probably some of you have. As we read this text, we say, God, am I to obey and submit and honor and remember and even imitate every leader I've ever had? And to that, the word of God says, no. Follow, obey, and submit to leaders who are faithful to the word of God. Leaders who are faithful to the end. Their lifestyle and their speech the word of God that they declare, they line up. And ultimately, they love Jesus appearing. That's who you follow. And so by way of transition, I want you to know that there's two groups of people that we're speaking to this morning. And the first group of people this morning is those who lead now or who would be leaders. If you want to lead in the house of God, what do you, what do you have to be faithful to? You, you have to be faithful to the word of God. You have to be faithful to the word of God. Again, what is it that you preach? What is it that you teach? Not your own wisdom, not your own desires, not your own thoughts, not your own preferences. You take the word of God and you give it to the people of God. This is what it is to be a faithful leader. If you wish to be a faithful leader, then this is what you've got to do. You've got to be faithful to the end. Your lifestyle has to line up with the word of God just as Paul's did, just as Jesus's did. You think about even Jesus, our great master, what did he say as he walked this earth with his disciples? He said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You submit every part of your being to the Father. And more than that, you love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we see? We sang about it a moment ago. Jesus at the end of his life, praise God, what does he do? He submits every part of his being to the Father. And more than that, not only does he submit every part to the Father, but he submits himself to love of his neighbor, even to the point of death. And so if you're to be a leader in Christ's church, if you, like me, so many years ago, feel this desire even brewing up in your heart, this affection for God's people, this desire to lead in Christ's church, you need to know that you've got to be faithful to these things. But more than that, who is this sermon for? Well, you say, well, I'm not a leader. I don't feel called to lead in Christ's church, and nobody's approached me about that. And, and yet, so maybe you're asking this morning, well, what's this sermon? How does it apply to me? How does it help me? Well, there is a responsibility that you have as a congregant, as a member of a church, as a person who holds down the pew, so to speak. Now, you have a responsibility as well. And what is that responsibility? That responsibility is to make sure that the one who stands in this pulpit, who leads in Christ's church, is worthy of these things. 
And friends, there's so much at stake. You say, well, what, what am I to do? How am I to think about leaders and particularly leaders who fail? Well, I want to give you some instructions here, again, from the Word of God. Not necessarily in this passage, but framing up a safety net for us, as it were, as we continue to move forward and ask the question, what is this passage requesting of us? And so I've got seven points for you this morning. What do you do when leaders fail? What do you do when leaders fail or or when our leaders fail us? Seven points this morning. The first is this. Give them grace. Give them grace. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. It says this, Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. Well, there's a lot being said there, but I really want to lean into verse 2. It says that everyone who speaks stumbles in many ways. Is there anybody here that's not said something that's true? Is there anybody here that's not said something that was full of grace or not misleading either intentionally or not? None of us. We've all made mistakes. We've all failed. I'm the first to say this morning that as a leader in the church, as an elder at Hagerstown Church, even one of the founding pastors of Hagerstown Church, that I'm not perfect and I stumble in many ways. And so on the authority of God's word, the authority even of the gospel that says, I'm not here in my own righteousness, I ask you to give grace, to give grace and to be patient with your leaders. And that may seem self-serving, and yet it's emanating from the gospel that we give grace to each other. It's interesting. Many of us, we think that we are good followers. Many of us think that we are humble people, easy to be led. So long as the leader is perfect. So long as the leader doesn't make any mistakes. So long as the leader doesn't stray this way or that way. And the irony of the matter is that God himself has given us the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is that perfect being, that perfect leader. And yet in between, in some sense, Jesus, the chief shepherd, and you, the congregant, he has placed under shepherds. The scriptures say throughout the New Testament By the authority of the Holy Spirit, they stand and they shepherd and they lead and they teach and none of them are perfect. And so each of your leaders, whether they be good or bad in your eyes, they need grace. None of them are perfect and they all stumble. And so what can we do when leaders fail? What can we do when leaders fail us? Well, number one, we can give them grace. But number two, we can pray for them. Number two, we can pray for them. And look at Hebrews 13, verse 18. The preacher here, the one who's been preaching for a couple months here at Hagerstown Church, what does he say here? He says, pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience. We desire to act honorably in all things, and I urge you the more earnestly to do this, to pray for us, 
in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. What is he asking? He's asking, he's saying, hey, I, I think I've got a good, good intentions. I, I think I have a clear conscience and I desire to act honorably in all things as a, as a preacher, he says, but I want you to do something for me. I need you to do something for me. I'm urging you to pray for me. By the way, why is he doing that? Because number one is true, because he needs grace. There's something that he doesn't have in a sense that he needs. And he's saying, church, will you pray for me? Think of this. Who was the leader of the Jerusalem church? Who was that leader? Well, it was, it was Peter. It was Peter. Jesus ascends and the disciples are hiding. Then they're, they're praying and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on them. Peter gets up and starts preaching. What happens then, right? The church is born. And Peter, the guy who stands up and preaches, is the guy that is called to lead the church, not by the church necessarily, but by the, the Lord himself. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to lead my people. You're going to be the, the under-shepherd here when I'm gone. You're going to be the one that's teaching and, and preaching and praying and leading. And I, I want you to know it's going to be you. But do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He's outlined Peter as the one who's going to be leading, in a sense, physically speaking. And what does Jesus say to Peter while he's here on earth with his disciples? He says, Peter, I want you to know something. You're going to lead, but also here's something else. Satan, he's desired you. He wants to destroy you, Peter. And not only does he want to destroy you, but he wants to destroy the people that you're going to be leading. He's going to, he wants to destroy the people that you're going to be shepherding. And what does Jesus say? You've heard it before many times. And Jesus looks at him and says, but I want you to know something, Peter. Satan wants to destroy you, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Friends, if, if, if Jesus prayed for the leaders of that first century Jerusalem church, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? We should pray for our leaders, shouldn't we? And so what can we do? Well, when our leaders are weak and when our leaders fail us, we can give them grace. And furthermore, we can pray for them. But don't let that grace and don't let that prayer keep you from number three, holding them to a higher standard. Write that down. Holding them to a higher standard. Well, we looked there at the James chapter three and we saw that we all stumble in many ways. And there's not one person that, that hasn't stumbled or, or messed up in some way, speaking of his tongue. But at the same point, what does James say? At the same time, he says, but not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. There's something at risk. There's something at stake. And in fact, the stakes are very high. And for those who would teach God's word. And while the grace is true and the prayer, need for prayer is true, we're also to hold these brothers, myself included, to a higher standard. Why? Well, again, there's so much, so much at risk, so much at stake. Do you remember what we saw in 2 Peter chapter 2? It says, because of these men who have led the church astray and are continuing to lead the church astray, that the way of God, the, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ it is being disgraced. 
It's being destroyed. And so because of that, there is a stricter judgment. There is a higher standard. I heard one pastor speak to his church that he was loved by so affectionately. He said, if I ever begin to teach a heresy, if I ever begin to teach a false doctrine, if I ever abandon the truth of Jesus Christ, he said, fire me in a heartbeat. Run me off. Why? He says, because you're giving grace to me because I don't want to incur any more judgment from my creator, from my master, than I have already incurred. I want you to notice something. Up until this point in our list of ways that we can respond to our leaders, I want you to recognize that these first three are always to be true. Whether you think your leader is leading well or leading poorly. When you think of me this morning or Pastor Chris or even Pastor Brad, and you, might, you may say, well, uh, it's a mixed bag. I think this and I think that. Well, this is true. Up into the, to the third one, they're to always be true. We're always to give grace. We're always to pray, and we're always to hold them to a higher standard. And yet here, at this point, there's more work to be done. Point number four, what do we do when our leaders fail us? Well, we're to approach them. We are to approach them. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15, 16, and 17. What does it say? Well, it's that great passage on church discipline. You say, well, that's church discipline. That's not elder discipline. Well, you need to remember that any pastor, any elder in a church is before an elder, a member of the church. And even after they've become an elder, still a member of the church of the church, still a brother in Christ. And so what does the word of God say? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, if he sins against you in any way, either by things that he does or things that he says, what are you to do? Well, you're to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, it says you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, well, there's more work to be done. And so number four, you are to approach your leaders. You're to approach the leaders. Now, I want you to say, I want you to know something. I want to encourage you. So many of us, when we hear things like this, you think, oh, this could never be true. And yet, so many times, pastors do stray. And some of us, while we're apprehensive or reluctant to go and speak to our elders and to approach them, Others of us maybe are all too excited to do so. All too excited to line them out or to fix them or set them straight. And while the case is true that it needs to be done, I would encourage you to not forsake point number one and two before coming to point number four. If you've got some correction to offer, let me ask you this first. Before you approach your brother or even your sister in Christ, whether they be a leader or not, I want to ask you, have you spent time in prayer for them? Wouldn't wouldn't we do well to do that very thing? To approach them having having spent much time in prayer for them. And so point number four, we can approach them. Not only can we, but we should approach them. We should go and tell them their fault between him, you and him alone. But number five is also true. You see, the scriptures don't just end at saying, go and tell your brother, particularly if he's an elder, go and tell him. But more than that, we are to do number five, and that is to discipline them. To discipline them. It says, if 
verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It goes on to say, if he refuses to listen to them, these two witnesses that have come to him, that have established this charge, then you're to tell it to the church, you're to tell it to the congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. And maybe, unfortunately, you're even uh, familiar with this passage as it relates from one member of the church to another member of the church, but you've not considered it in how it applies to a pastor or to an elder in the church. And friends, I would remind you that this passage not only applies to fellow members of the church, but also to pastors of the church. If he does not listen to your correction, what are you to do? You're to take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Sadly, I heard the story of a man who had started a church not, not actually that long ago. He had been a faithful teacher of the word of God and had been discipling and raising up many other leaders, some of those leaders even becoming elders in the church. But the point became a point in time in the history of the church and the history of this pastor that he fell. It was revealed that he was caught up in a very gross moral failure. Before that sin was revealed to the church, before discipline was executed against this or applied to this man, he asked, he put leverage on his young disciples, on these other elders, that they not go public with this, that they not require true repentance and restoration that the scriptures require. In that moment, he revealed himself to, while he had been a faithful teacher of the word of God, he had not been faithful to the end, at least not to this point. And he loved honor and reputation more than he loved the Lord. And what did these brothers do? Praise God, they did not listen, but they continued to take and to care for this brother in a biblical way. And I want to encourage you to consider before you blindly say, well, we'll remember the leaders of Hagerstown Church. We'll consider the outcome of their way of life. We'll imitate them. We'll obey them. We'll submit to them. We'll pray for them. We'll believe the best about them that you also say, are these brothers faithful? Not just today, but in the future as well. What does the Apostle Paul say? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But Paul says, listen to what he says here. And if it applies to Paul, certainly it applies to leaders and elders in the church today. He says, even if we, Paul says, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul's saying, you've heard the gospel faithfully preached through me. And if that is obscured in the future in any way by me, Paul says, let me be accursed to you. He goes on to say it in a different way. And even more specifically to himself, instead of using this humble plurality and his addressing here instead of saying we he moves on to say now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel to the one you that you received let him be accursed and what does this mean well what if what if your pastor what if your elder is the apostle Paul and he begins to teach a different doctrine 
Should we overlook it? He begins to practice a different doctrine. We begin to see cracks between differences, a space between the things that he says about the word of God and the things that he does about the word of God. Well, what do we do in that situation? Well, we do not consider him to be a worthy leader anymore. And when it comes to the gospel, Paul says, let him be accursed. Treat him as if he's not even part of the fellowship because he is not. Again, what's at stake? Remember what 2 Peter 2, 2 says. Because of these leaders, what's happened? Well, the way of truth, the gospel that is clearly preached, the church of Jesus Christ, it's blasphemed. It's held in a very, very poor, poor view. And so what are you to do? Well, you are to discipline them, even to the point of leaving them which is point number six. You see, there may come a time where church discipline is impossible. Why? Because it's been in some way obstructed by the leaders of the church. And what does Paul say? And what does the writer of Hebrews say? He says, get away. Leave. Why? Because you don't want to be part and parcel. You don't want to be contributing to the fact that the word of God, the way of God is blasphemed and even the church of Christ is held in high or lower view in some way. And so we are to leave them. God forbid that ever takes place in this building. That this congregation would ever come to the point where they have to abandon their leaders because they have refused to be faithful to the word of God and to Jesus himself. But in that situation, what are we to do? We are to leave them. And point number seven, this is the final point as it relates to the action steps before we or as we realize that not all leaders are being faithful to the word of God, and that is to look past them. Point number seven, look past them. What do we do when we come across a, a pastor who has failed, either morally or theologically? He's not been faithful to the word of God. He's not being faithful to the end. He's not being faithful to the Lord or to leave them, and we are to look past Just a bit more than 500 years ago, there was a monk whose view of the truth had been obscured by the wickedness of popes and bishops, leaders in the church who were not faithful to the word of God. They were not faithful to the end. They were not faithful to the Lord. And this monk, he looked from a very dark room past these unfaithful shepherds. And who did he look to? Well, he looked to the faithful Lord proclaimed in the word of God. And by that light, the light of Jesus Christ, the the Reformation was lit. The Reformation that still, as you can see, is burning brightly even unto this day. When we think of the Reformation, when we think of those who looked past these wicked leaders, we have this Latin saying, after darkness, light. After darkness, in the dark ages where the church and the word of God was obscured by the leaders of the church, after that great period of darkness, there has been a great and even greater period of light. Why? Because Martin Luther, that famous monk, looked past, looked past those wicked leaders and he looked unto Jesus, which is precisely 
what we've been saying. It's precisely what this passage has been saying for such a long, long period of time. Martin Luther was looking unto Jesus and church. We need to do the same. We look at our leaders. We imitate as we consider our leaders insofar as they preach faithfully and they speak rightly. We obey them and we submit to them. But through all of these things, whether they are doing well or doing poorly, we look past them and we look unto Jesus. That's what we've been called to do. And here's the main idea for you this morning. Whether you are a leader in the church this morning, a would-be leader or a member of the church, considering your leader. Here's the main idea. Worthy leaders are faithful to Jesus Christ in both their message and conduct. Worthy leaders are faithful to Jesus Christ in both their message and conduct. And you might say, Pastor Josh, what... Why did you preach this sermon this morning? Well, it's not because I think that we have a bunch of unworthy leaders. Uh, nor is it because it's, uh, this is pastor appreciation uh, time in the year, and I want to make sure that I get a few more pies and maybe some for Chris and Pastor Brett. That's not the, that's not the point. We're just looking at the next passage, and by God's providence, this is where we come to. I certainly believe that the, the men who lead in this church are faithful in all of these ways. And yet I want to remind you, regardless of whether our leaders here lead well or not, Jesus is faithful. He's, he's faithful. And while you remember our leaders, I want you to also remember him. And while you remember our leaders and consider our leaders, I want you to consider him. And I want you to imitate him. And I want you to obey him. And I want you to submit to him. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's faithful in the garden. He's faithful even now as he stands and intercedes on behalf of his church. And he's faithful for all of eternity. 